Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Good to be with you, ladies. I, let me get this out of the way. My daughters looked at me this week and said, oh, man, Dad, you're going hip with the red, with the red wrist, wristband. <laughs> And I went, yes, my black one broke, so I went in and got your mother's extra band that off hers, and so I have my wife's red band on here. I'm, I'm pretty much hipping with it. I just want you to know that. So that's, that's me. By the way, God gave daughters to us fathers to make fun of us and mock us. And so, that, yeah, that's, mine have very sufficiently done so through the years. So, Ladies... It's an honor to be with you, and I want to do something that matters. I, I, I recognize there's a responsibility here, and, and, and I want to get into something. I think the way that Christ will set you free involves what you've heard your whole life, which is set you free from your sin. And it's right. I, I, don't let me in any way besmirch that. But I think probably what you also have to hear, and I think it's the one that makes the difference in your discipleship and, and your own joy and delight, you need to be fret, set free from your own wrong story. I'm going to make an assumption, and I don't, I don't think I'll be wrong. All of you live with a deeper story. There's a story that actually drives you. Why are you so insecure? Why do you get your feelings hurt? Why do you get angry like you do? I mean, I'm different people, by the way. I'm not describing the same person. Why, why do you notice everyone else's success and it feels like a threat to you? Why, why do you withdraw from people? Why are you so craving to always be with people? Why do you hate solitude time? What, what, I mean, just all the things that make us... My guess is that you have a deeper story that's playing out in your life that you're going to be redeemed from. And so that's where I'm going to start with this one. So let's say that I had two or three days with you just as a friend, and we just talked, and, and I said to you repeatedly, tell me your story, and you just begin to tell me your story. You, you, you told me everything. You, you know, you, and we don't tell things linear. We tell them with circles back. And, and so for two or three days, you're just telling me your story. And, and when you get done, I, I'm oversimplifying, and I really wouldn't do this in reality, trust me. But when I got done, when you got done, two or three days, two or three hours each day telling me your story, I would say, okay, so, so let me get this right. And I began to storyboard your story, which I wouldn't. But So I go, okay, so you were... You were two when your dad walked out on you and mom and, and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you were four when, when you got the stepdad and the stepdad wanted mom, but he really wasn't that interested. And, 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 and you got the siblings brought in, the halves brought in. And, and Yeah, that's okay. And you were in first grade when one of the stepbrothers molested you. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what happened. You were in second grade and fourth grade and fifth grade, sixth grade, and, and, and you just tell me your story. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the friends, the freshmen in high school that you, you were such clear, good friends with, and that turned, you don't even understand to this day, how did that friendship turn so bad? And they can't stand me, and I felt so betrayed, 
And I have trust issues because that friend did. And you were a sophomore in high school when this happened and junior. And, and, and you just go through. And, and, and you say, yeah, that's kind of who I am. That's, that's kind of why I am what I am. And I say, thank you for telling me your story. Now, you've got to use your imagination and cut me some slack. So I call my good friend, the novelist, Stephen King. We're just like that. And so I call Stephen King, and I say, Stephen, would you come by my office? And he said, sure, be happy to, Randy. And so he comes by my office, and, and I say, Stephen, I'd like you to write a novel. Now, some of you might not know who Stephen King is. I guess I better start with that. Stephen King writes dark stories. Would we all agree? Dark stories. If you want joy and delight in your life, don't read Stephen King's books, okay? So I invite Stephen King by, and, and, and I say, Stephen, would you write a novel, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of, you know, dedicate it to me, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, would you write a novel? And, and Stephen, I want you to use these plot points. I need you to stay with these plot points. Stephen says, sure, Randy, I'd be happy to. So he's gone six, seven, eight months. He comes back, and he brings a, a book, a rough draft of a book. I read it, and it is dark. I mean, it is heavy. It is got crisis and tragedy and all kinds of things in it. It's a dark book. Now, it's brilliantly written, but it's a pretty tough story. I say, thank you, Stephen. This is an honor to get to read this. Here's $37.50. Thank you. And Stephen leaves my office. So I go call my good friend, Steven Spielberg. We're two just like that. Actually, if you want to brush with greatness, I have hugged President Obama four times. Just want you to know that. If you want to come touch me, you're welcome to do so. <laughs> Stephen King or Stephen King and Steven Spielberg, not so much. But anyhow, so I call Steven Spielberg, and I say to Steven Spielberg, would you come by my office? And Steven said, sure, be happy to. And so he sits, and I say, Stephen, would you write a screenplay, a movie? Would you write a book? I don't care what you do, but Stephen, would you use these plot points, and I need you to to incorporate them all and stay pretty well with those plot points. Steven Spielberg goes to be happy to. He's gone six, seven, eight, ten months. He comes back and he brings, and I read it, and it is the most high-fiving, fist-bumping, joyful. I mean, stick your chest out. This, this is good. I mean, you just, hey, this is victory. This is incredible. Now, now I'm confused. Because he used the exact same plot points as Stephen King, and Stephen King's is dark and scary and, and hard, and Steven Spielberg's is joyful and delightful and victorious. I, I don't understand. Here's why. What has happened to you does not dictate and control your life. The narrative you've created to make sense out of your life is actually what dictates and drives you. The narrative that you have created is actually what drives and dictates the life of your deeper story. When I say you need redeemed of your story, one of the things that I want to just simply say to you is I'm going uh, to tell you, and I'm 100% right. I'm not arrogant. I'm just right on this one. You don't even know your own story. Your own sin confused you, the sin against you confused you, a broken world confused you, and here's what really bit you. You started that story as a three- or four-year-old child trying to make sense out of your life, 
Children are magnets for pain. They are terrible interpreters of pain. And so you started trying to make sense. If I were just funnier, if I were just smarter, if I were just better, if I were just this, or people are this way and when they see me, and you started a story as a three- or four-year-old kid trying to make sense, and then the first-grade kid added to that story, and the second-grade kid added to that story, and the third-grade kid added to that story, and don't misunderstand me, there were some significant hard things that happened, and good things too in there, don't misunderstand me, but as you went through your life and tried to make sense of it, you've just kept adding to that story, and I'm looking at a group of young women that don't even realize they are living out the narrative that a little four-year-old girl started. And a third-grade girl added to. And things become self-confirming. Once you believe something, something becomes self-confirming. When you meet Jesus, I'm going to get to the punchline, I'm going to circle back. When you meet Jesus, I can guarantee you what Jesus is doing to you. He's going, oh, sweetheart. No, no. That impacted you and affected you, but that wasn't about you. No, sweetheart, you've got your story wrong. That's not who you are. That's not how I see you. That's not your worth and dignity. That's not, but you've lived with such self-confirming things to match the narrative that you created. You are the Stephen King. It was a crazy experiment. I'm throwing this in here. Crazy experiment. Steve and Shelley, they were both on staff at John Brown University in the psychology department. And I've heard Steve teach this two or three times. And so I quote him on it. They did a, a social experiment on the beach in California. That social experiment was pretty simple. They brought in individuals one by one who looked nice, who the world would say you either have beauty or are handsome at some level. Not superstars, just people. But, and they said, we need to do an experiment out on the beach. And they brought them in one at a time. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to just walk out and have interaction on the beach with people. Just give the frisbee back to them. Nice dog. Wave. Just, just don't, don't do anything obnoxious. Just walk around the beach. You are handsome or you are pretty, and we just want to know how people respond to someone with your looks. So they came back about an hour, hour and a half later, and most of them put sevens out of a ten. People respond fairly well. They were friendly. They would smile back. They would wave. I I felt pretty accepted. They said, okay, now we're going to send you out and we're going to mar you. We have a Hollywood Hollywood makeup artist here, a collection of them. We're going to mar you. We're going to put an oozing sore on your, on your cheek. We're putting a hideous kind of mark here, perhaps. Each one was different. But it's something clearly when people see you, there's a chance they could draw back. And what we need you to do is we're going to send you on the same route, you know, three or four hours later, but we're going to send you out, and we want to know how people respond to people who aren't as attractive. So they took you about two hours in a chair, an hour and a half in a chair, doing the makeup, and they brought a mirror to you, and you went, ooh, that is bad. Yuck. That's kind of nauseating. And you saw it, and you went out. 
you came back, and here's across the board, you marked that people responded to you at a three or a three and a half. Half or less, people withdrew from me. People didn't want to look at me. People were embarrassed by me. Here's what you need to know. There was no difference in reality. What? what? They showed you a mirror of the hideous thing, but just as you walked out the door, the makeup artist would say, hey, a second, let me, let me straighten that out for you. They used the beach because there are no mirrors there. And they said, let me straighten that, and they pulled it off. It left the glue, so you thought it was still there. It's not there. Your self-perception begins to say whatever your narrative and you add to it. And so when I began to meet Jesus and I have this crazy story that I believe about my life, I'd be worth more if I were taller, shorter, skinnier, better, smarter, funnier, I were whatever it is. I'd be better if my dad just loved me. I would just be better. And, and don't misunderstand me. I, I'll say again, your own sin confused you and the sin against you confused you. But you begin to create a narrative about your life and the redemptive work of Jesus is pretty simple. Jesus begins to say, child, I love you, but you don't even know your own story. You're living out a survivor's narrative. You're living out the narrative a, a broken culture taught you. You're a million-dollar kid who believes a 10-cent story. If I were to just take you to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, go live with Jesus out of those texts, there are about 213 different events that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the life of Jesus, about 213, 214. There's about 96 or 98 places that these 213 events occur. Can I walk you through those events? Not all of them, obviously. He sits down with a woman at the well who has an inner story. It's based on some reality. It's based on fantasy. And Jesus says, please, ma'am, I have a drink. And she said, you're a Jew, and you'd even speak to me, a Samaritan? And you're a Jewish man, and you would ask to drink out of a cup that I might have? What, what in the world is this? And Jesus starts a conversation, and Jesus sets with her. And if you play that whole thing out, Jesus retells her her story. And Jesus confronts her with the story and turns it. And the God of the universe will sit with a woman at the well and say, you, you, you don't even know your own story, hon. And Zacchaeus, can I go to your house? I, let me retell you your story. Simon the leper. If I walked you through all of those and said, look at every single one of those, what you would actually find is a Christ who every time he meets you is redeeming you, not just from your sin, but from your story. Many of you in this room, let me just make a simple observation for many in this room. You don't understand a simple phrase that is really, really true. What happened in your life with your dad, your mom, your brother, the stepbrother that you, you, you fill a blank in? Whatever happened, it impacted you and affected you, but it wasn't about you. You need to know that phrase. Because if you don't know that, you will write this stupid thing into your story, and you think it's part of your narrative when it's really not. It impacted you, affected you, but it wasn't about you. 
let me take the busiest road in Bloomington or wherever it is you live. Let me take the busiest road and you're driving down that road and a car pulls out and hits you. Little fender bender. You'd be stupid and wrong to jump out of your car, run around to that driver and say, why did you pick me out? Out of all the drivers on the road, why did you want to hit me? What do you got against my white car? Do you not like white cars? I was going to the doctor. Are you trying to keep me from getting to the doctor? You would be the nut, okay? Why? Because it impacted you, it affected you, but it wasn't about you. It would have happened to anybody who was driving by. When you were molested as a five-year-old little girl, I am sick for you, but you need to know that had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with your worthlessness, had nothing with the fact that they thought you were worthless. Any five-year-old girl there would have had the same thing. Your father walking out on you, your father struggling to love you and know how he should, or your mom and some of her emotions, or, or maybe the sophomore boy you dated. I mean, oh, it doesn't matter. A, a teacher over, overloaded, it doesn't matter. It impacted you and affected you, but it wasn't about you. But you keep writing that in your story like it was about you. Wrong story, hon. You have to have your story redeemed because you're living out the wrong story. This illustration, I know, doesn't apply for everybody, and I apologize. It's just mine. I grew up with a dad trying to just make a living farming, uh, ranching. Dad had nothing. Dad got kicked out of high school as a sophomore for high school for fighting. He was fighting, got kicked out of school. My dad probably lived out of a bottle for five or six years, just bummed around the country. He would have been that kid in the pool halls and roller rinks. And my dad kind of straightened up when he was in the military in Germany, and Dad came back and married the valedictorian. Explain that one to me. Um, no money. Dad's working multiple jobs. I, I grew up in a man's environment. My dad had no value really in book smarts, but street smarts my dad cared about. I grew up in that man's environment where your worth and value is you don't make mistakes. If you make mistakes with street smart stuff, you, you're kind of dumb and, and kind of dismissed. This isn't my dad's story, by the way. This is my story. I'm unhooking an implement from behind a tractor. I'm probably 10 or 11 years old. It's borrowed from the neighbors. It's a disc. Some of you know what that is. Others, you know, it doesn't matter. I could say any word I want. Um, it's, a, it's a piece of implement uh, that turns dirt over. And, and it's a neighbor's, and I wasn't familiar with this. It's 9.30 at night. It's dark, and it's got three hydraulic hoses that connect from the tractor to the disc. And, and I saw two of them and unhooked them and unhooked the pin, and I drove the tractor off, but I didn't see the third hydraulic hose. They cost quite a bit. That's not the big issue on this. And they snapped. I snapped the hose. My memory of that is being a 10 or 11-year-old boy just in the barn after I parked the tractor and I'm just throwing up and I can't stop throwing up. You're so stupid. You're just so stupid. You're just so darn stupid. Why? Because in my value system and in the narrative I've created, you don't make mistakes. I fought that value system as a kid. I made good grades because if you don't make a good grade, what's it say about you? I don't lose in sports. Oh, I may lose, but I don't lose. I've had 79 stitches on my face from about eight or nine different occasions, all of them sports. Because I'm keeping my head in longer. I am not losing this thing. I am, why? Because it's no longer about what happens with the football, it's what happens in my story. 
my wife will tell you I don't have much of a temper, honestly. My wife would tell you that most of my characteristics are not too offensive unless I get embarrassed. And if I get embarrassed, and again, this is an old story when she first married me, that's when I made a fool of myself because failure was a part of my story. Even as a young preacher, I, I was preaching some places that if I preached a bad sermon, and they happen fairly regular, and I'm looking at a thousand people out there and I'm going, oh, that's humiliating. That is so stupid. You're just so stupid. I knew I was redeemed by Jesus, but my story wasn't redeemed. When I was a young guy and I'm going, oh man, that was a horrible sermon. That was embarrassing. I can't wait to preach. I, man, I, I, I wish Sunday would come on Tuesday so I can preach a better sermon. No, no, Randy. The Lord would say, Randy, you don't understand. Your healing is not in your sermons, Randy. I'm your healer. And Randy, I loved you when you were in a nursery and didn't know your name. And I will love you in the nursing home when you can't remember your name. And your sermons have nothing to do with it, Randy. I care for And Christ has to redeem my story. I can tell you as an old guy, he will. But you have to challenge your own story. Here's another way of saying the same thing. If I looked at you as a sophomore girl in high school or I looked at you as a sophomore girl in college, there's a very good chance that you're covered, and I'm speaking metaphorically, obviously, but you're covered with Post-it notes. You have a 1,000 Post-it notes on you. You're smart, you're dumb, you're stupid, you're not funny, you are funny, you're this, you're that. You have Post-it notes all over you. They were put on to you by coaches. They were put on by teachers. They were put on by stepdads. They were put on by stepbrothers. They were put on by eighth grade boys you went to this eighth grade dance with. They were put on by friends. And the handwriting is lots of other people. But if you actually counted, half of those have your handwriting on them. And you're sticking post-it notes. And you don't know which set to believe. Some days you feel in a good mood, so I believe this set. And other days, not so much. And these are the ones you believe. And Christ meets you and goes, oh, sweetheart. And poof, we need to take every post-it note off and let me retell you your story. Let me stick on you who you really are. Some of you are living beneath your dignity. You're living beneath your privilege. Not necessarily in your behavior, I don't know. But the longing in your chest, the loneliness you feel, the craving you have, the frustration you have, those are actually not coming from where you think they are. They're coming from your deeper story that's never been redeemed. I could show you this lots of places, but one of the easiest places to just start on page one of the Bible. I love Genesis 1. Love it. So powerful. And again, you hear me say, use the phrase, cut me some slack. I don't want you throwing something at me halfway in the story. This is, be patient. Genesis 1 is actually one of the places God begins to go, can I correct your story? Can I, can I fix your story for you? 
Genesis 1, down to, from verse 1 1 to verse 25, probably. God is creating. And God is creating out of, his, as, out of his imagination. So he imagines mountains, so he makes mountains. And he imagines animals, and he makes animals. And he imagines you know, fish, and he makes fish, and whatever. Now, here's the part that I don't throw something at me. It's poorly written. Have you noticed that? Poorly written. Smiley. If you turn Genesis 1, the first 25 verses, into a writing teacher the writing teacher would quickly notice there's a redundant phrase that's used 10 or 11 times and it reproduced after its own kind 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 and reproduced, I'm not even to 10 or 11 yet. Your writing teacher would say, get a thesaurus. It's not because God is a poor writer, it's because he has a highlighter. And he's highlighting something he doesn't want you to miss. Because he's about to take a hard turn at Albuquerque on the verse 26. And that hard turn is this. Up to verse 25, everything comes out of his imagination and it reproduces up to his own kind. And then God says in verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in, in our image. After our kind. Male and female, he created them. For the first time, God doesn't make something out of his imagination. He makes something out of his own nature, and that's you. Do you know what that means to be made in the image of God? It means your worth and value is declared to you. It is declared. I used the little phrase last night. I'll build on it. You're the shadow of God. You star. I was with uh, a one-year-old granddaughter. She's now... 15, so 14-year-old story, apparently. Actually, she's about turned two. And I've got grandfather duty that day with this little blonde, blue-eyed little girl. And again, a few days before she turned two. And so I decide to just entertain her. It was a sweet, wonderful late day in May. I set her on my lap on a riding lawnmower. No, we did not mow with a two-year-old on my lap, okay? But I used it like a kind of a go-kart around the yard. And, and it was a day that the shadows were just so crisp on the, on the ground. Just one of those days. And so I tapped Kinley, and, and I had Kinley look at her shadow down on the ground. And she's looking, and I said, Kinley, wave. And Kinley took her, and the shadow waved back at her. And she didn't know what to think. She raised two hands, and the shadow raised two hands. And Kinley began to giggle and laugh, and she began to do things. And, the sh and she giggled, and she laughed, and she laughed. And, and I would turn the lawnmower, and the, and the shadow wasn't there. And, and I would point behind me, and she'd climb up my shoulder and look. And she just found her shadow again. And, 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 and one of my favorite days as a grandfather was the day that Kinley found her own shadow. One of my day, best days as a human being was the day I discovered who I actually am. I'm the shadow of God. Well, he's the greater and he's the and I'm the lesser, but, but I know. Do you know what it means to be most myself is to look most like him? When my kids were little, we had a book about the little boy that lost his shadow. I remember reading it to him when they were little bitty. And, little boy and his shadow. It's written from the shadow's perspective. And the shadow gets away from his little boy, and at first he feels great freedom. He can be whatever he wants to be. He doesn't have to be just a little boy, but, 
But then he begins to get scared and lost, and he doesn't know what he is, and he tries to be a tree, and he's not a tree, and tries to be a cow, and he's not a cow, and he tries to be a barn, and not a barn, and he tries to be, and he, and he keeps getting more and more misshapen, and he doesn't find relief till he comes back and finds who he really is. That is the story of my own life. And my worth and value was not whether or not I see hydraulic hoses on tables or whether or not I win or lose a game. And my worth and value is not if I was the funniest one or the smartest one. My worth and value has been declared. In Genesis 1, you're made in my image, yet your worth and value. He's secondly, in, 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 in Genesis 1, verse 26 and verse 27, the Lord says, come on, kid, co-rule with me. Co-rule. You're not the kid told to shut up in the back seat. Come inside the front seat with me. I'll make them, you name them. I want you to co-rule with me. And the third thing that he does is in verse 28, and he blessed them. Now, wait a second. They haven't turned a tap yet. They haven't mounted anything. Withhold your blessing till they amount to something. Wait and see how they turn out. And God goes, no, I'm speaking words of affirmation and affection over them because of who they are. Your worth and value, you're a million-dollar kid who's had a short bus ride through a tough neighborhood. And your worth and value is declared from the outside. You don't have to go earn it. You don't have to develop it. You don't have to go find it. You don't have to go crave to get the blessing. I guess I... I've been with enough girls. I don't know most of you in this room, obviously, but I, I, your faces, I, I'm so sorry for the pain. And so I do get emotional. <sighs> if I were to pull a $100 bill out of my pocket, I told the guys it'd be magic. If I were to pull a $100 bill out of my pocket and I need you to do audience participation, no matter how dumb I may sound, all right? And I hold it up, I say, how much is it worth? Your answer would be? Good job. So I take the $100, and I go out and find a mud hole out here, and I throw the $100 in it, and I take my shoe, and I wipe it around in the mud, and I pick up the $100, and I say, now how much is it worth? Your response would be? $100. So I go, that's not enough. So I find where, and again, this is a little gross, but, but I find where the dog has been, and there's a little dog manure, and I take it, and I throw the $100 around, and I take a stick, and I wipe it around through that, and you're looking at me with your eyes getting really big if I were actually doing that. And I take a pair of gloves and I pick it up. I say, now how much is it worth? Your answer would be? Because the only thing you're thinking is, what kind of an idiot are you to treat a $100 bill like that? <laughs> you're a million-dollar kid. And the molestation that occurred to you or the abandonment that happened or the boyfriend that walked off or the friend, it did not change your worth and value. Your worth and value was set outside of you. You're a million-dollar kid who needs to know what Christ thinks of you. You need to know that your story... Now, you're a sinner. Don't misunderstand me. But I happen to notice that Christ is pretty affectionate towards sinners. And yes, you're living brokenness, and Christ is trying to call you to a way that you don't have to keep scarring yourself. But your worth and value is established. And the blessing was already spoken over you. You want to know the actual weakness most of you in this room is you're still running around looking for the blessing? I about guarantee you there's not a single girl in this room that if you have sexual misbehavior in your life, 
It wasn't because of lust and sexual drive. You were looking for a blessing. Please, somebody bless me. Please bless me. I want a blessing. Any of you got drunk in this room, you didn't get drunk because you loved the taste of alcohol. You got drunk because there was a group. Please, I want a blessing. I guarantee you. And Christ is going, oh, child. You're chasing the blessing. Here's just a reality. You are either living your life from the blessing or you're rather living your life rather frantically looking for the blessing. Please validate me. Please validate me. If a guy doesn't date me or if the right guy doesn't date me, how can I be validated? If I'm not the smartest kid in the class, how can I be validated? If, if, if I don't have this set of friends who include me, how can I be validated? Please validate me. Please. Two things should have happened when you were, came into the world, and they didn't. Okay, I, I, I know that. We're a broken world. Your parents deeply loved you, but your parents, your, your mom and dad had a hole in their chest too because nobody helped them. What should have happened, let me take the first one, and we may not even get the second one, I don't know, time-wise. What should have happened is that you discovered that you were deeply loved. For what it's worth, you were a failure as a child. I just want you to know that. Children are professional mistake makers. Do you know that you fell far more times on those early walking days than you actually took steps? But what should have happened is a mom just picked you up and you're deeply loved and goes, good job, hon. Yeah, you failed. No, 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 no big deal. You'll get it. And mama should have kissed knees and, and hugged you. You spilt your milk. And mom's going to go, oh, hon, we got some cleanup to do, don't we? Yeah, it's, it's hard being little, isn't it? It's okay. I spilt my milk when I was little too. And you picked it up. And you should have arbitrarily figured out that when, that when I do really, really well, I'm deeply loved, and when I mess up, I'm still deeply loved. You should have gone to school as a first grader and come back from, from first day at school, and you say, Mom, they had races at school today, and I was the fastest one. All the kids in my class, I was the fastest. Your mom should have picked you up and held you and said, Oh, sweetheart, that's fun. There's 64 cradles in a box, and apparently God made your cradle fast. We'll have fun with that, won't we? Good job, hon. But, hon, you were every bit as loved yesterday when we didn't know you were fast. Don't you ever think you being fast causes me to love you more? But it'll be fun to play with, won't it? You should have come home from school and been crying and go, Mom, I can't had races at school today, and I was the slowest one. And all the other kids finished, and I was the last one, and some of them were laughing at me, and your mom should have picked you up and held you and said, Oh, sweetheart. There's 64 Crayolas in a box, and maybe your Crayola isn't fast. It's not a big deal. We'll have a blast with your Crayola. And I loved you yesterday this high, and I love you today this high. And your being fast doesn't make one bit of difference. And she should have hugged you and said, let's go get ice cream. But that isn't what really happened to us. We're in a world where we recognize that somehow we either wrongly interpreted our worth and value was more when we achieved or when things turned out well and we were less. 
Children are magnets for pain, but terrible interpreters of pain. Every school in America has about a dozen dirt piles out in front of the school. Your elementary school had it, your junior high had it, your high school has it. I guarantee you it's, it's, it's outside of every campus house as well. It's in every college. Dirt piles. The boys quickly recognize what I'm talking about. You're smarter than them, so you'll figure it out. <laughs> the game of King on the Hill is kind of fun for a kid's game. You scramble up the dirt pile and you push somebody off and they try to push you off. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun game as a game. It's a terrible way to get your worth and value. So you went to school and you had run around your house in your Spider-Man underwear and you were fast and you were everything and you jumped and everybody and, and you got to school and thought you'd be a good athlete. So you went to the hill where the athletes are and, 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 and you weren't good. They didn't want you on the team, and, and, and you scrambled and tried hard, but they were going, ah, you'd be the number three right fielder out behind the fence. And when you failed at the athletic dirt pile, you felt like a failure. You may not have thought about it. So I'm going to move to the next one. I'm going to be the smartest kid in class. I'm going to be the smart kid. And you scrambled and you did, and you did but, but the new kid moved in and the new kid was smarter and you kind of blew that test. And, and the teacher even said, that's kind of strange. You, didn't, that's, you, you normally do better work than that. What happened? And, and, and you began to, and I, and I found out I, I, I couldn't, in fact, I think I'm dumb. I don't think I'm the smartest kid in class. So you move to the next dirt pile. I'm going to be the nicest kid in class. And I tried to be the nicest kid in class until that one kid made me angry and I shoved her and, and this and that and, and the teacher got into this. And, or, or maybe I was, I was the nicest kid in class and nobody seemed to notice. I'm on a dirt pile by myself and nobody cares. So I moved to the next dirt pile. That's where I can be validated. That's the boyfriend-girlfriend one. So Sammy and Tommy and... And the drama. Or maybe that one wasn't it. Maybe you moved down to the cynical one. That's the one where you're like Eeyore, that glass is half empty, you use sarcasm, I don't try, I play it cool, I'm one of the cool kids. I act like nothing gets to me. Except it's hard to out-cool other people. And somewhere along the line, your slip showed. And that didn't work. And we just keep trying to find. You showed up as a freshman in college and your first thought was, which dirt pile can I possibly win on? Two bad things happen on those stupid dirt piles. One, it's pretty simple. You can't win. There's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody funnier. By the way, one of the dirt piles, I'm going to be the funniest kid in class. And everybody laughed for the first three weeks. And about the fourth week, they're going, you're dumb. You, that wasn't funny. But the two bad things happen is you, there's always somebody who's better. And so it, it breaks your heart. Some of you, that's exactly what you're doing with dating. It's exactly what you're doing with grades. It's exactly what you're doing with internships. It's exactly what you're doing with, you just got a different name for the dirt pile. Here's the other bad thing that happens. You might win. And if you win, it doesn't break your heart. It crushes your soul. Because you begin to believe 
at your worth and values from that. And so I want you to notice how well it worked for Tiger Woods to be the finest. How well is it done for Beyonce? How well is it done for Donald Trump? How well is it done for Biden? You win at the thing that you think matters. How well does it work for Hillary? It crushes your soul because you believe a lie and the goalpost just keeps moving. Somewhere along the line, I come to the place of going, Christ, I've rejected your truth for my truth long enough. It's time I embraced grace. It's time I believe that you value me. It's time I began to live out the story you tell me who I am, not what some dumb old boy would tell me. The reality is the redemption of my story is what changed my life. Discipleship is to believe that Jesus needs to put his fingers on every part of my life and healing begins to come when you believe the story. Now there's more to that, but I'm going to kind of quit if you don't care on, at that point. Does this make sense? When I sort of sound accusative and say many of you are on the dirt piles, am I wrong? Stop chasing things that can never can never satisfy. I think I'm going to let you go. I gave the boys another 10 or 15 minutes and it dealt with the sexual stuff and the brain and all of that. Talk to the boys about it. It's actually not about sexual organs. It's about your brain and how your brain deals with it. But to do that, I would have to take you guys longer. And it's, you didn't get any sleep last night. <laughs> Some of you look amazing for getting no sleep. <laughs> but any questions anybody wants to ask? I'll, I'll, let me just start with that. Anything off this that anybody wants to, that, that didn't make sense or something out of clarify? Tonight we're going to pick up, I sort of dismiss you. Tonight we're going to pick up and talk about, so how do I get my emotions healed? And why are my emotions not healed? And we're going to play with that tonight. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.